forth the word today. Thanks, Justin. I was going to thank you for uh, scheduling me to preach with one hour less of sleep. And then I was going to thank you for breaking the music stand, which is already a little short for me. Um, all right, so good morning. Those, those of us, those saints who are anointed into heaven because we made it to church on Sunday. <laughs> I want to start off this morning just with this story that, uh, that happened to me a couple years back. This was actually a while back before the pandemic when I used to take the train a lot more. So back then, you know, if you take the train, you grew up in New York, there's always like a cast of characters that you're used to, right? You take the train, there's a woman selling churros on the platform. She's been there since five. There's the kids, they're trying to sell you candy for their school, right? You guys know them? You guys know them? A mariachi band will show up out of nowhere in your train car. We all, we all, you know, we're used to that stuff, right? And there's always some interesting characters that we just kind of know you know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't get into the empty train car, right? Maybe we shouldn't get in. So what happened, so what happened to me was that I was sitting in the train car, and all of a sudden the doors open, and this man stumbles in. And he's not smelling great, he's high, he's, he's drunk, he's on some kind of substance, right? So he, he falls in, literally falls into the train, and he starts stumbling because the train starts moving. He can't keep his balance. And he starts falling on people. And people are like, you know, you can, you can see they're kind of repulsed. You know, they don't, they don't really want to touch him. So, you know, naturally, you know, I got my bag. If things pop off, you know, I'm ready to switch off at the next station. That's, that's my natural reaction is I'm, I'm on guard. And then I saw this woman. And maybe she was a, a nurse or a caregiver, or maybe she was just really kind. She started talking to the man. And that's like rule number one, right? We don't engage. We don't engage. But she engaged. And she started talking with him, which with any other person would be normal, but, but this surprised me. So I was like, what are you doing? So she starts talking to him. She's like, hey, hey, buddy. You just need to sit down. Come on here. Come, come on over here. And she touches him. And she guides him to, there are these empty seats next to her. She guides him next to her. And she pats his back. And she's like, just put your head down. <laughs> Buddy, you just need to rest. Put your head down. She was talking to him like he was her friend who just had a little too much to drink. And she did it so naturally. She did it so normally. And, and I'm sitting there, and I'm watching her, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, this woman, what she was doing wasn't something fantastic, but it, it gave me so much admiration for her. But it also made me feel a lot of shame. It made me feel a lot of shame because I realized that when I saw this person, I had dehumanized him. I had dehumanized him. He wasn't a person to me anymore. So this morning's passage is an account of when Jesus goes to meet a man. Also, he's not in his right mind. Also, he has an issue. He has problems. Also, he's been rejected from society. 
we're going to see what happens. Why don't you guys pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your spirit and your presence this morning, Lord. We thank you that it will be you who will speak today. And Lord, I ask that your spirit would fill me, that your words may convict and your words may transform us to be more like you. Lord, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's open up our Bibles or grab your service sheet to Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Everyone at home, Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Last week, John spoke about Jesus taking his uh, after-church nap in the boat, if you guys remember, with the disciples uh, through the storm. And, and John challenged us to consider where we had placed our faith. So this week, we're going to find out where Jesus goes in his boat. Where is he going in his boat? Luke chapter 8, verse 26, I'll be reading from the ESV. Uh, feel free to follow along which, with whichever translation you're more comfortable with. Luke 8, 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled, told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Amen. This is a long passage. I always get the longest passages. If you see me come up here, you know I'm going to be reading for 10 minutes. But a lot happens in this narrative. A lot happens. And this account is recorded in three out of the four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have their version of this event occurring. And all three Gospel writers include so much detail. So much detail that we don't actually often get with the accounts of others other healings that Jesus had done. You know, like, as we've been reading through Luke, we get these little sound bites of his ministry, right? 
Some guy has leprosy, he gets healed. Simon's mother-in-law is sick, she gets better. Um, the details that we get are almost always around how people came to Jesus, right? The faith that it took for friends to bust open a roof and bring their friend in, you know, those are the details. Uh, the details of the centurion who's sending delegates to talk to Jesus. But like, we don't really hear that much about the person who's sick, except this time. This time, all the details, all these little nuances that are included are about the man who is sick, are about the man who needs healing. And whenever we read that, that should make us pause. That should make us pause. Because when a writer includes details, that means that there's something in there that they want us to pay attention to, right? If they're including something, we should focus on that. Like if I'm, if I'm telling you a story about how my oven's broken, one side gets hotter than the other, I'm not going to give you details about the cookies I was trying to bake, right? Because I'm talking about my oven. On the other hand, if I'm telling you my oven's broken and I really want some cookies and I hear your oven's working <laughs> and these cookies are really easy to make and I could just send you the recipe, maybe I want you to pay attention to something else. So back in this passage, Luke narrates this story in a really intriguing way. He tells us what's happening and then he gives us flashbacks over and over again. We're jumping back and forth in time which creates, us more creates more sympathy in us and sometimes more horror. So Jesus steps out of the boat onto the pagan land of the Gerasenes. Scholars debate which city, which town he exactly went to, but it's the land of the Gerasenes. The Gerasenes are a people who are not Israelites. They're not Jews. They don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are uh, idol worshipers, probably. But we're, we're in foreign land. We're in a foreign country now. We're far from Galilee. And he meets this man who the ESV translates as having demons. Having demons. This is a different translation than the NLT. The NLT says that this man was possessed by demons. In other translations, it just says he was a demon-possessed man. But the literal Greek doesn't have that. It doesn't have the word possessed at all. It just says that the man has demons. And that kind of changes our perception about him when we read it that way. Because if I told you a story, oh, there's a demon-possessed man out there, it's going to be hard for us to relate to, right? Unless we've been demon-possessed, and then it's a one-on-one -on -one correlation. But it would be hard for us to relate to unless I said, hey, there's a man, and he has demons. He has a problem. Then all of a sudden, he's humanized, and he has a problem which we can all relate to, and his problem's actually a really, really severe problem. See, when Jesus meets him, the man is naked. He's been living in the tombs. So for us, that would be a cemetery. He's been living amongst dead people. Mark's gospel gives us more detail, that this man, night and day, has been crying out, cutting himself with stones. This man who has demons, he's lost his mind. He's lost his mind. Luke says that in another flashback that the demons had often seized him. They've taken him violently. And the people would chain him and shackle him, almost like what you would do with a wild animal. 
See, the garrison saw this man as a violent menace. He was rejected by society. The only thing they could do was chain him up, but the demonic supernatural power in him would tear the chains and drive him into the desert. The garrison saw him not as a man who could be healed or a man who could be helped, but a man that was hopeless, a man that was hopeless and needed to be subdued. We get the seriousness even more of this man's problem when Jesus asked them, what is your name? And the demons answer, legion, legion, a legion. The Roman army is a cohort of five to 6,000 soldiers. So when we read legion, we realize, oh my, this man has, he is not just, he has a demon in him. He has thousands of demons. Thousands of demons are inhabiting this one man. Now I've heard from friends, mostly missionaries, who have experience with people who have suffered from demons before. And they tell me that it's almost always often that the person who has allowed a demon to come in had been engaging in unrepentant, continuous sin. They might have been harboring hate. They might have been practicing witchcraft. They might have been performing idol worship. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that what the pagans sacrifice, they're not sacrificing to God. They think they're sacrificing to a God, but they're really sacrificing to demons. See, these people are opening this gateway for demons to come inhabit them. So when we hear of this man with thousands of demons, we have to wonder, like, what were you doing? What were you doing that you found yourself in this state that this has happened to you? How did this happen to you? But the scriptures don't tell us. We're not given that opportunity to judge this man. We don't know what he was doing. All we know is the state of his condition. All we know is that he's naked, he's living in the tombs, he's crying out, and he seems hopeless. And this is the first most glaring truth that we can glean from these details. This truth is that no one is beyond Jesus' mercy. No one, not any one of us, not anyone we see out there, no matter how much we have screwed up our lives, no matter how far we feel from God, no matter how much sin we've cultivated in us, no matter how much we have been rejected by our community and society, not any one of us is beyond the mercy of Christ. So it's, it's a fascinating event, this, this story. When you read this in context, remember last week, John preached about how Jesus, Jesus uh, rebuked a storm when they were in a boat. So in the beginning of that passage, in verse 22, Jesus tells his disciples, seemingly without explanation, he says, hey, let's go across to the other side of the lake. Let's just go. John told us last week, it's not that long of a, of a boat ride, but he just says, hey, let's go over to the other side. So we learn today he gets to the land of the Gerasenes. We read this passage about how he heals this man, the people reject him. We're going to get to that. 
And then Jesus goes home. Jesus goes home. Nothing else happens on this trip. Nothing else happens. He tells his disciples, let's get on this boat. Let's go across to a foreign country where there's unclean animals, where there's pagan, pagan uh, garrisons. Let's go over there and let's land in a place with tombs. Hey, let's just take a trip. A storm comes, terrifies them, and almost kills them. I think he went just for this man. I think he saw this man. I think he knew this man. I think he knew that this man was one of his sheep, and he had to go get him. Nothing else happens. He goes there and he comes back. You know, this is the real-life version of that parable of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to find his one. See, back in Galilee, remember, Jesus is famous now. Crowds are gathering around him to hear him preach. People are coming from other towns. They're bringing their sick. They heard of Jesus. There's plenty of work, plenty of ministry to be done back in Galilee. But Jesus is like, nah, I got to go here. <laughs> I got to go here. I read this article once of a woman whose son, her only child, he was abducted from her town when he was two years old. And she spent her entire life looking for her son because she knew that was her son. He was hers. She spent her entire life chasing lead after lead. She connected with other parents who also lost their kids. She volunteered for some organization that reunites parents with lost children. After 32 years, 32 years, a lead finally brought her son back. She had never given up. See, the reach of Jesus' mercy and love, it has no limit. He's not afraid of the condition that we may have brought ourselves to. We might feel shame. We might feel like we don't deserve you, God. I'm not good enough to go to church. But he's not going to be stopped. He wasn't stopped by a storm. He wasn't stopped by dead bodies, unclean animals, pagan worship. He, he's not going to be stopped by our sin. He's not going to be stopped by our shame, our muck, our feelings of worthlessness our uncleanliness, we might feel that we are beyond hope. We might feel rejected by society. We might be so self-loathing that we think that we might as well be dead. But we will never be beyond Jesus. We will never be beyond Jesus. And this is ontologically impossible. I know that's a big word. Ontological just means in the reality of it is that it is impossible to be beyond Jesus. Psalm 139 says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I go? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. But if I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol is what the Hebrew scriptures call the underworld, where dead people go. If I make my bed there, down there with the dead, as this man has found himself, you are there. You are there. We can consider ourselves as hopeless and as far gone as one can be from God. And Jesus' mercy can still reach us. No one is beyond Jesus' mercy. 
So Jesus performs this miracle. He meets this man. Man falls down. He performs this miracle. He casts out the thousands of demons that have been torturing this man. He casts them out, and, and he allows them to enter this herd of pigs, this huge herd of pigs who are apparently there. And they immediately, the pigs immediately rush into the lake, and they drown. They drown. You know, it's amazing when I read this. It's amazing how the demons, they desire destruction and chaos so much that the moment that, that those demons went into the pigs, the pigs destroyed themselves instantly. Yet this man was not yet destroyed. This man was being tortured, yet somehow God had kept his life. He kept his life. That's God's mercy. Now, there's a bit of confusion as to why, Jesus, why are you negotiating with demons, right? We don't negotiate with terrorists. So, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you allowing these demons to go into the pigs? Well, let's look at that. In the beginning, their, their first plea when, when the demons saw Jesus was, they said, please do not torment me. Later, it says, don't send me into the abyss. So the abyss is understood as a place where demons would be punished and kept. Matthew's version gives us a little detail. Matthew's version has the demon saying, have you come to torment us before our time? Before our time. See, they recognize there will be a time where judgment will come. And it's possible, it's possible that Jesus conceded to their request because it was not yet time for the final judgment. It's possible. We don't know, but it's possible. What we do know is that the death of the pigs is extremely visible. It's proof to anyone who was watching that something had happened. Something had happened, and it's a terrifying sight. You know, when Jesus heals him, it's not like the guy suddenly, like, becomes lucid, <laughs> wakes up. You know, there's this terrifying, visible exorcism, this terrifying sight. How many of us have ever seen thousands of pigs stampede into the water and drown themselves? I don't think any of us have. I imagined, it's like that scene in Lion King. You guys remember Disney's Lion King? And you remember there's that, stamp, that scene with the stampede of the wildebeests? And the wildebeests, you see them, Simba's running away, and all the wildebeests are coming down into the valley, and it's a, it's a horrifying sight. I imagine it's the same as that. Thousands of pigs rushing, stampeding into the lake and drowning themselves. It's a horrifying sight. And if, it's, if you're the herdsman, these are your pigs. Your pigs are drowning themselves. That's your money. You're, you're watching your bank account drain right there. So of course, of course the herdsmen went and they went and told everyone that they knew if this was today, people would be posting on Twitter. It'd be on the Citizen app in like a minute. And everyone went to see. Everyone went to see. They found the man healed. And the passage doesn't elaborate, but I imagine they also found thousands of dead pig bodies in the water. So they were afraid. They were afraid. See, we might know that no one is beyond Jesus' mercy, but for them, they realized no one is beyond Jesus' power. No one is beyond the power of Christ. If you've been a Christian in the evangelical tradition for a while, you know our theology sometimes gets a little bit fluffy. 
What do I mean by fluffy? I mean, a lot of times we, we emphasize a lot how Jesus loves us. We emphasize grace a lot. You know, we, we emphasize that so much that we don't understand why are these people seized with fear? Like, Jesus just healed this man. Jesus is the good guy. He did something great. Why are they scared? See, they don't know this. They don't know that Jesus is the good guy. They don't know who Jesus is. Remember, these aren't, these aren't Jewish people. These are people that don't know God. They don't know anything about him. He just showed up on a boat from Galilee. And all of a sudden, this man who everyone knew could break chains was just sitting there, clothed. And all of a sudden, all these pigs are dead. See, unlike us, unlike we as Christians who often ask, we ask, what can Jesus do for us? These garrisons who don't know him saw his display of power and they thought, what can Jesus do to us? What can this man do to us? What else can he do? This man has a lot of power. What can he do? You know, I heard that for Christians, a lot of times our relationship with God kind of oscillates on a spectrum between intimacy and reverence. So if you have great reverence for God, right, then God is holy. God is on his throne. God is to be worshipped. Don't blaspheme his name. He's to be obeyed. But then we sacrifice intimacy because this God seems far away. On the other end of the spectrum, this is what I was mentioning before, we have great intimacy with God. We love Jesus. Jesus loves us. Jesus, get me that parking spot. Jesus, help that train come on time. I love you. You love me. But then we, we sacrifice reverence sometimes because then our sins don't matter. Because Jesus is my best friend. I'm forgiven. I'm saved. So it's not, it's not that big of a deal, right? One of the reasons why we struggle between the spectrums, one of the reasons why we get stuck in intimacy sometimes is because we don't know the accounts of God in the Old Testament books. We read the highlights. We read the New Testament, Jesus, and then we don't see him as the same God in the Old. We go, this God seems angry. I, I don't know that God. You know, God in the Old Testament, think of the plagues that God inflicted on Egypt when Pharaoh would not let the Hebrew slaves go. God sent plagues of frogs, flies, locusts. God commanded the death of livestock and eventually the firstborn in Egypt. God is a fearsome God. God is a fearsome God. And while the garrisons, see, the demons saw Jesus as the son of the most high God. The demons knew who he was. The garrisons, while they might not know that, they knew they should be afraid. They knew they should be afraid. What can Jesus do to them? They knew that they were not beyond this man's power. No one is beyond Jesus' power. The apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians about Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. No one's beyond his mercy and no one is beyond Jesus' power. Finally, we come to almost this, it's almost like an epilogue of the event. Uh, Jesus is persuaded by the people to leave. They're terrified. They don't know who he is. They don't know what he wants. Just get out of here. 
and he obliges. He, he gets back in the boat and he returns to Galilee. So Luke gives us another flashback. Apparently, the man who was healed had wanted to go with him. He begged to go with him. He, this garrison man who was healed wanted to be a disciple to go with Jesus. But we learn that Jesus had sent him away. That verb to send away also means to free. It also means to free. Jesus freed him. You're not indebted to me. You are not, you're, you don't have demons anymore and you're not indebted to me either. You are free. He says, return home. He frees them with a command. Go home and declare how much God has done for you. And the man does that. It says right there in the text, the man did exactly that. He proclaimed how much Jesus had done for him. The man knew who Jesus was. See, Jesus frees us so that we might testify to both his mercy and his power. The herdsmen, they're posting on the Citizen app, like they're, they're sharing the story. They're sharing the news about Jesus, but it's not good news. They're not sharing the good news. They're telling everyone in the city and the country of Jesus's power. There's a man who came, that guy who was, who was going nuts in the tombs. He's better now. And, and all the demons went into the pigs. This, they're telling the story, but they're not telling the whole story. See, if we tell people about, you know, God's love, we say Jesus loves you, they're, you know, they're going to be like, so what? <laughs> so what? I love myself too. My wife loves me. <laughs> so what? Is he going to help me with my bills? He's going to help me with my child who's been in the hospital for two months? See, a God with mercy but no power is useless. On the other hand, a God of power Jesus with power but no mercy. Well, that's terrifying. That's so scary. You ever see street, pre street preachers? They got those big signs. 100% of their signs is about hell. <laughs> it's about hell. You ever seen like chick tracks? You guys know what chick tracks are? A lot of conservatives like them. Chick tracks have the most terrifying images. They're, they're little comics that are meant to evangelize. But people don't want to go to a God they're scared of. People, people don't, the garrisons aren't like, hey, Jesus, can I follow you? No, they want him to get away. Get away from my sight. But this man, this man who was healed, he saw Jesus' mercy and Jesus' power. This man who was clothed now, he got his mind back. He was sitting there listening to Jesus. He knew Jesus was a man of mercy, and that's why he wanted to go. Jesus, who told him to go home, he has a home. This man could have a family. He could have kids. We don't know. He has a life, and Jesus frees him. Go back. Go back to your life. You're restored. You're restored. This man knew that Jesus cared and had the power to do something about his situation. And that's what he was proclaiming. He was proclaiming what Jesus had done for him. And I want, I want to tell you the truth, church, that before Christ, we were in the same spiritual state at this, as this man. We were in the same spiritual state. We might see a man with demons and, and struggle to relate because physically 
We're not living in a cemetery. Physically, we're not, we have our right minds. But spiritually, we had no power. We were chained by our flesh. We had sin dwelling in us. We were hostile to God, and we were unable to free ourselves. We were unable to free ourselves, but Jesus, but Jesus, Jesus crossed this lake to find this man. Jesus came from heaven as a man so that he could reach us. God so loved the world. It was love that Jesus came for us. It was love. It was Jesus. Why we can go home. Why we are going home. Why we have new clothes on. We're not in grave clothes anymore. We are new clothes. We have new clothes. But we are not saved. We were not freed just to chill in the back seat while Jesus drives us to heaven. We were not saved for that. We were saved as ambassadors. We were saved to be ambassadors. We were saved to help free others. Jesus told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be. I guarantee you, this man, I said that Jesus came for him. But the reality is Jesus came for him and this man is going to proclaim about what Jesus has done for the rest of his life. The Gerasenes who were afraid are going to hear the true story from this man. The Gerasenes who rejected Jesus and said, go home, they're going to hear what this man has to say about Jesus and who Jesus is. See, we are freed to testify of Christ as this man did. So I encourage us. Let's do that, guys. Let's do that. Let us cross lakes and oceans to find his sheep as Jesus did. Let us show mercy not only to ourselves if we have fallen, but mercy to those people we have dismissed as hopeless, those people that we have dehumanized, those friends and family that they're addicts, they're lost, they're gone, they're hopeless. They'll never listen. No, that's not true. Because no one is beyond Jesus. No one is beyond his power. No one is beyond his mercy. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you are so glorious and so amazing. And you have shown such mercy to us. You have shown such mercy to us. We ask, Lord, you would help us walk as you have called us to walk. Help us to know the freedom that we have experienced and help us to proclaim who you are. That people might not fear, that people might not think you're, you're nothing, but Lord, that they might know truly who you are, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.